You are listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more media content or to find out more about our church, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. That's whitefieldschurch.com. Today's message is something worth waiting for. I recently started going to this barbershop here in town, and every time I go there, there is a line of people, and the average wait at this barbershop is about at least an hour. And the barber, he doesn't take any reservations, so if you leave and you don't hang out there the whole time, well, then you just lost your spot in line. But people do it, and they will wait for this guy. And he takes like half an hour per person usually. I mean, he takes forever. The other day I went there, and there was literally a line of people standing out in the rain waiting for this barber, though. And it struck me that this is something that's uh, very rare in our day and age. I mean, people don't like to wait for things. I don't like to wait for things. I'm not a good waiter, right? But there are things that are... There are some things in life that are worth waiting for, aren't there? Now here in the first chapter of the book of Acts, we're going to read about the instructions that Jesus gave his disciples, the final instructions he gave before he left this earth. And the key thing that we're going to see here is that he gave them a to-do list. And it consisted of one box that they needed to tick off, and that box was wait. Now nobody likes waiting, but some things are worth waiting for. And this thing he told them to wait for was something worth waiting for. What was it that Jesus told them to wait for? Well, that's what we're going to see this morning here in Acts chapter 1. So let's go ahead and get into the text. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So he says, the writer of the book of Acts, he says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. The writer of the book of Acts is a man named Luke. And we know about Luke because we read about him in other places in the Bible. He was a, a Greek Christian, and he was a physician by trade. He was a doctor, and we know that uh, Luke was a companion of the Apostle Paul who accompanied him on some of his missionary journeys. And so Luke here, writing this book, he, he begins this book by referring first to his first book. He said, well, there was a, a previous book that I wrote you before this. What book was that? Well, it was the Gospel of Luke. And it's important to take note of this, that originally the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts were joined together as one book in kind of two volumes which told one story. When these books were written, the thing that's important to remember is they were written on ancient scrolls. And the maximum length of these scrolls in those days was about 35 feet long. Now 35 feet of an ancient scroll is about how much room you need to write the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And, uh, and so that's why we have actually several books in the Bible which are of similar length. And that's why we have books like First and Second Samuel that tell one continuous story, but yet they're divided in half. We have First and Second Kings telling the same story, just it's divided in half. Why? Because of the limitations of the technology of that day. Your scrolls could only be so long. Now I think it's possible that if they had made 70-foot scrolls in that day, Luke probably would have written Luke and Acts on one scroll in one book. But because of the uh, technology of that day, he divided this story into two volumes, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Now the book of Acts is extremely important if you look at it from uh, a Bible perspective. I mean, imagine what it'd be like if the book of Acts was not in your Bibles. 
Okay, you, you'd be reading along in the Gospels about all the, you know, the wonderful ministry of Jesus, the exciting ministry of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the four Gospels. And then you get to the end of that, and then you'd turn the page to read the next book, and it would be Paul's letter to the Romans. And you'd be a little bit confused because you'd say, wait a second, I left off with Jesus and the disciples. They were in Jerusalem, and now... They're writing to Christians in Rome. Well, how did, how did Christianity spread from Jerusalem all the way to Rome? And, and who is this guy named Paul? I've never heard of this guy before. And, and the book of Acts tells us that story, the story of the expansion of the gospel from Jerusalem all the way to Rome. Now, one thing that's important to notice about Acts is that it does not tell us everything that happened in the early Christian church. I've been teaching a church history class on Saturday morning. Some of you are attending that class, and we've been studying about the various things that uh, took place in the early centuries of Christianity, missionary movements that went to Ethiopia, uh, people going to India as missionaries within the first century, even to Persia and even to China. But the book of Acts is only focused on one little slice. It's laser focused on one particular story of what God was doing at that time, and that was how Christianity spread from Jerusalem to Rome. The difference between Jerusalem and Rome, I like to think, would be kind of like the difference between Cheyenne, Wyoming, and New York City, right? That's kind of the difference. And uh, no one would have expected that a revolution that's going to sweep the whole world would come out of a place like Cheyenne, Wyoming, or, or out of Jerusalem. But the book of Acts tells us this incredible story of how this unlikely faith, this Christian movement, grew from this small group of people in an obscure corner of the Roman Empire, and it grew into a worldwide movement that, that swept, the, swept the earth. This is truly a remarkable story, even from a purely historical perspective. Let me read to you what one historical scholar says about this. He says this, Humanly speaking, Christianity had nothing going for it. It had no money. It had no proven leaders, no technological tools for propagating the gospel, and it faced enormous obstacles. It was new. It taught truths that were incredible to the unregenerate world. It was subject to the most intense hatreds and persecutions. And yet this unlikely faith spread all the way from Jerusalem all the way to Rome, and then even to the uttermost parts of the earth. And that story is incredible. Not only that, wherever this faith went, it changed people. It continues to change people. It changed societies. It changed the world. And by doing that same thing, and the, the gospel is doing that same thing even today. It is going into all the world and changing people, changing societies, and even changing the world. So this book was written by Luke, and he addresses it to a man named Theophilus. Now, who was Theophilus, and why did Luke go to all this work of writing this, these two books for him? Well, there are several theories. Let me tell you what some of them are. One theory is that Theophilus was a friend of Luke. Theophilus was actually a common name in that time. And so Luke, the theory goes, wrote this uh, these books in order to tell his friend Theophilus this incredible story of Jesus, this incredible story of the Christian movement, with the hope that having read this story, this friend would also put his faith in Jesus Christ and become a Christian. Now, if that was the case, and it very well may be, well, then we have to say, wow, that is incredible. 
that someone would put this much work into sharing the gospel with one person, doing whatever it takes to reach that one person. That's simply incredible. Another theory is that Theophilus was not an actual person, but Theophilus is more of a symbolic title because you see the, the name Theophilus means lover of God or a person who loves God. And so some people think that maybe these writings of Luke were written to all people who love God and want to know the story of Jesus and the story of how the gospel spread all the way to Rome. But there's one more theory, and this is the one that I personally believe and hold to. I believe that Theophilus was an actual person. I believe that he was a Roman official. And Luke and Acts were written together as kind of a defense briefing for the Apostle Paul by his friend Luke. Now, now listen to this and, and hear me out here. Because where the book of Acts ends, think about the last couple chapters of the book of Acts. It ends with Paul having arrived in Rome. He's under arrest. He's awaiting trial before Caesar where he's going to make an appeal of his case, where he's been arrested for preaching about Jesus. Now, you know, if you are a Roman magistrate, and here's this guy, Paul, who just arrived from some corner of the empire, and he's under arrest, and he's appealing his case to Caesar. Well, you'd want to know a little bit about the case. You'd want to know some background. You know, who is this guy, Paul, and, and why is he here in our court? And he was arrested for preaching about Jesus? Well, who's Jesus? What did he do? And so Luke writes this story in two volumes for this Roman official, Theophilus, to give him the background and tell him the whole story, starting with Jesus and everything that Jesus did, death and resurrection, and then the movement of Christianity and the apostles, and then the apostle Paul, how he became a Christian, and then what he did as a missionary, and then how he got arrested and how he got to Rome. Another reason why I think this is the case is because throughout Luke and Acts, you will notice that whenever Roman officials are talked about, which they are many times, they are always portrayed in a very positive light. Now, that would make sense if you're writing to a Roman official. And Luke always portrays the Roman officials as smart and wise. He talks about how Jesus interacted with Roman officials and Jesus healed their children and how many of these Roman officials became committed Christians in those early days of Christianity. And that would make sense, right, to emphasize these things if you were writing to a Roman official. On the one hand, to tell him the story of Christianity, but on the other hand, to say, hey, you know, People just like you are also becoming Christians, and maybe you should think about it too. And hey, by the way, there's a church here in Rome if you ever want to go check it out, right? So Luke writes in his first book, he says, In my first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now let me say that again because it's wonderful. I wrote to you about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Do you catch the implication in that word? The gospel of Luke was all that Jesus began to do and teach. It wasn't the sum total of what Jesus did and taught. Do, do you understand the implication here? He's saying that was just the beginning. That was just the beginning of what Jesus did and taught. And now what I'm going to write you next, this is the continuation. This is the continuing things that Jesus continued to do and continued to teach. And the work of Jesus, let me tell you, it continues on until our very day. 
When we get to the end of the book of Acts, what you're going to notice is that there's no conclusion to the book. It doesn't wrap up nicely. It's just kind of reading, and then it, you turn the page, and oh my gosh, it's, it's over. And you're like, why was there no conclusion? It just kind of stops. Well, the reason the book of Acts has no conclusion is because this story wasn't finished yet when the author started writing. This story of the continuing work of Jesus Christ, it was not finished. And so how can you write a conclusion to something that has no end? It's been said that every generation writes its own chapter to the book of Acts. The stories of the amazing things that God did among them through their generation in that particular location where they were based as they followed him and sought him. The ways that God answered prayers, the ways that God did miraculous things and and took the gospel forward and changed lives. And I'll tell you what, I have many stories like that. Maybe you do too. You know, Rosemary and I have often said that, that we could easily write a book about the things that we have seen God do in and around us over the years that we've served him. In fact, interestingly, a book actually was written last year about the work that God has been doing over the past 20 years through the group of churches that we were involved in uh, in Eastern Europe. And Rosemary and I were mentioned in that book. Even our daughter was mentioned in that book. And, and there's, but, but that story, it's one chapter, it's one little slice of all the work that Jesus continues to do and uh, throughout the world through his church. The story isn't over. The story of all that Jesus continues to do and to teach all over the world, that story is still being written even in our day. And let me tell you this, God wants you to be part of that story that he is writing in our generation. He wants you to be part of the story, that chapter, that slice of what he's doing here in this place at this time. The title of this book is The Acts of the Apostles. That's what it says here if you look at the top of the page. Acts of the Apostles. Now, that's not a title that Luke gave this book. That title was added on at least 100 years after Luke wrote it. And many people over the years have kind of commented on how this is somewhat of an unfortunate title because it ignores the very important theme that Luke wants to emphasize right here as he introduces the story. And that is this, that this story is not primarily about what the apostles did. Yeah, they did these things, but the story is about all that Jesus Christ continued to do and to teach through these people and by the Holy Spirit. You know, people have suggested many times different titles for this book, more appropriate titles. Uh, I think this would be an appropriate title. The Acts of the Reigning Jesus Ruling from Heaven. The acts of the risen Jesus ruling from heaven. Or the acts of the Holy Spirit through his church. Because that's what this story is all about. If you look at Jesus' disciples, it doesn't take very long to figure out. They weren't really the sharpest tools in the box, right? They weren't always perfectly qualified for this thing that Jesus was calling them to, to lead a worldwide revolution and turn the entire world up on its head. They didn't have anything. They had no education. They had no money. They had no technology. All they had was this simple message, this simple story about Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what makes this story so remarkable. And and that's why it's something that we need to pay attention to, you and I as, as believers today. It is uh, this story of how God took these simple people. Their only ability was availability, and he filled them with his spirit, and he did a great work through them that lasts even to this day. And let me tell you what, if he can do that through them, 
Well, then what about you? If he can do that through them, then what about us? Can God do something like this? Can God do great things through you? Can God do something big through a group of people like us? Absolutely he can. Let's continue reading from verse 2. This is all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. And he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. You know, we've mentioned it several times this morning that today is actually a holiday. It's the holiday of Pentecost, which is celebrated by Jewish people and by many Christians. And we're going to read next week about what happened in, on the day of Pentecost uh, in Acts chapter 2. But for now, I just want to point this out. Pentecost is a Greek word which simply means 50. 50. And Pentecost was a Jewish feast commemorating the giving of the law to Moses. And it was celebrated 50 days after the Passover. But for 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus was with his disciples. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 about how Jesus continually appeared to many people during these 40 days. And at one, one time, he actually appeared to over 500 people at one time. And so the, the day did come, however, when Jesus departed. We read that he was taken up, and this is what is known as the ascension. But before Jesus ascended during this 40-day period, he spent time with his disciples, and it says that he gave them instructions about what to do in his absence. From verse 4. While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So at the end of the Gospel of Luke, we read about one of these conversations that Jesus had with his disciples. During that 40-day period, at the end of the Gospel of Luke, we read about this. It says, Then he, that's Jesus, opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And he says, You are my witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father. Isn't that what he just said in Acts? It's the same thing. The promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city, that's Jerusalem, until you are clothed with power from on high. So here's Jesus before he leaves, and he's telling his disciples not to do anything else except one thing. Go back to Jerusalem and wait. Wait for the power of the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Father, that he is going to clothe you with power from on high. He says, okay, guys, let me just reiterate this one more time. Here's your to-do list. It's only one thing. Go back to Jerusalem and wait. Wait for the Holy Spirit. Don't do anything else. I don't, want you to, I don't want you to go to the store. I don't want you to talk to anybody. I just want you to wait, right? Wait for the Holy Spirit. Just go back to Jerusalem and wait. And here's why. Because Jesus knew that they could not do anything. He, they could not do the things that he was calling them to do without the power and the leading of the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you, do you know that that is true in your life as well? That you need the power and the leading of the Holy Spirit in order to do whatever it is that God has called you to do as well. Jesus told them to wait. Now nobody likes to wait, but sometimes there are things that are worth waiting for. 
Now, by telling them to wait, this shows that the power of the Holy Spirit was something that they could not create. It wasn't something they could just stir up or work up within themselves. It was something that had to be received. It wasn't just enthusiasm. It wasn't just energy. It wasn't talent, and it certainly wasn't just personality. No, this was something that was outside of them, something that they had to receive, something that God was going to give them. It was God coming, and it says here, baptizing them with the Holy Spirit so they could carry out the calling that he had given them. Now we read in the Gospels that John the Baptist said this. Early on in the Gospels, he says this, I, this is John the Baptist speaking, I have baptized you with water, but he, that's Jesus, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now what does that even mean? What does it mean to be baptized with the Holy Spirit? Well, clearly there's a parallel being drawn here between the baptism of John with water and the baptism that Jesus is going to give with the Spirit. So how did John baptize people? Well, he baptized them by full immersion. When John baptized people in the Jordan River, he would submerge their body under the water of the Jordan River. That's how Jesus himself was baptized. And that word baptism, it comes from the Greek word bapto, which means simply to immerse something, to submerge something. And so what does it mean to be baptized in the Spirit? It means to be immersed. It means to be submerged. It means to be completely consumed by and surrounded by the Holy Spirit. That was the promise of the Father, that they would be fully consumed by the Holy Spirit. Now let me, let me stop here and just say, don't you want that in your life? I know I want that in my life. I've had enough of me. I've got plenty of me. You know what I want in my life? I want more of God. I want to be surrounded by him. I want him to consume and surround every part of my life. I don't just want a little bit. I want to jump in all the way. I want to be baptized, completely covered in the Holy Spirit. So verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, a lot of people give the disciples a hard time. You know, in a way, they're kind of easy targets, you know, and it's like a favorite thing of preachers to kind of just, you know, rip apart the disciples and talk about how all oh, the stupid disciples, they never get anything after all this time. They're so dumb. Look at them doing this and that. Kind of point at them and laugh. And a lot of people actually give the disciples a, a hard time for asking this question right here. Jesus, are you going to restore the kingdom? That kingdom you've been talking about is now the time when you're going to restore the kingdom? Like, come on, they still don't get it? But you know what? I think that this was actually a really good question. I don't think it was a bad question at all. Because here's the thing you need to remember about Jesus. That the kingdom of God was Jesus' favorite topic to talk about. Jesus was always talking about the kingdom of God. It was the great hope that he was planting in the hearts of all people. We just finished studying the Sermon on the Mount last week, and in that sermon, guess what Jesus talks about the whole time? The kingdom of God. We read there in verse 3 of Acts chapter 1, we just read it, that during the 40 days that Jesus was with his disciples, he met with them and he talked with them about the kingdom of God. Jesus was always talking about the kingdom of God. He was saying, look guys, the way that things are, right? We all have this sense that the way that things are is not the way that they should be. But Jesus says, you know what? The way things are, this is not how it's always going to be. We live in a broken world. We live in a world that's under the shadow of darkness and evil. But we, 
But it's not always going to be that way, guys. I promise. One day, God is going to establish his kingdom, and it will be a kingdom of righteousness and peace and joy, and Jesus will reign over that kingdom. And that will be the greatest day the world has ever seen, in which sickness and pain and death and sin and greed and evil are all abolished. When Jesus reigns, that's the hope of the world. So no wonder the disciples were anxious for the kingdom to come. I'm anxious for the kingdom to come. I hope you are too. If I had five minutes with Jesus, guess what I'm asking him? I'm asking him, Jesus, is it time yet? Is it going to happen? When is that day going to come? Is it soon? Because I kind of hope it is. You know, in fact, Jesus had actually trained his disciples to be looking forward to and waiting for this day. He, he talked about it all the time. He taught them to long for that day and long for that kingdom. You remember when he taught them to pray? The very first petition that he told them to make was, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The desire that the disciples had for the kingdom of God, it was a good desire. It's a desire that we should all have. It is the great hope of all the earth. So disciples say, Jesus, when are you going to come and establish the kingdom? Is it now? Is now the time? And notice this. Jesus doesn't rebuke them for his question. Here's how he responds in verse 7. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, Jesus doesn't rebuke him for this question. He simply says, guys, I'm not going to tell you the answer to that question. You don't need to know the answer to that question. Now, isn't that interesting? Because sometimes, isn't it true that we ask God questions and he doesn't give us an answer. He doesn't give us the answer to our question. We say, God, why? Why are you letting this happen to me? Or we say, when? When, God? How long am I going to have to wait? Is it ever going to happen for me, God? This thing I'm wanting so bad, this thing I'm looking forward to and hoping for. When, God? Why, God? We ask these questions, but sometimes... God doesn't give us the answer. Now, I know several people who struggled with this. They, they, they ask God why. They ask God when, and they don't get an answer. And if that's ever been you, then I want you to pay attention right now. That's where the disciples were at. Look at this. They're facing an uncertain future. This is uncharted waters. Jesus has always been around. He's always been around to help them out and show them what to do. And now he's going to be leaving. And they want to know, Jesus... Okay, Jesus, you're leaving. How long is it going to be before you come back? Because we can hang on for like three weeks. Do you think you could come back in like three weeks? Because we can do that. They said, Jesus, how long is it going to be till you establish your kingdom? Is it going to be right now? If you leave, you know, I mean, how, how long until you come back? Give us some information so we know what to expect, so we know what to count on, so we can prepare. Give us some information so we can, you can be ready. They were worried about the future. And you know what? This is something that's common to people. A lot of people, when they're worried about the future, one of the ways that they cope with their anxiety is by wanting more information, asking a lot of questions. And that, that's what's going on here, right? Jesus says they, they, they want to know what's going to happen. They're trying to cope with this worry, this anxiety about the future. But here's what Jesus says. It's interesting. He says, what you want is more information, but that's not what you really need. I know what you really need. What you really need is not more information. What you really need is power to face this situation, to face this next season of your life. You need power from the Holy Spirit. That's what you need to face this situation and this challenge. 
You think you need more information, but what you, you think you need to know when things are going to happen and why things are happening, but what you really need is not more information. What you really need is power from me to navigate this and to deal with this and to do it faithfully. So I'm not even going to answer your question. But what I am going to give you is the power that you need by the Holy Spirit to face this season of your life and to thrive and succeed in the things that I'm calling you to do. Now, why wouldn't Jesus answer this question of theirs? Well, obviously, one reason might be because he's just wanting them to trust in him. But I think there might be another reason. Maybe it was because Jesus knew that if they knew the answer to that question, they might be discouraged unnecessarily. I mean, really, they're expecting him to come back in like three weeks, right? That's about as long as they feel like they can hang on without him. If they were to know that it was going to be more than 2,000 years before he was actually going to come back and do that, they might have been like, 2,000 years? I can't do this, man. They'd be unnecessarily discouraged. So, So not telling them the answer to their question was ultimately for their own good. Now, don't we all do that with our kids? Right? They ask the question and we say, don't worry about it. You know what? I'm going to take care of that. You worry about this. They ask, when are you, you going to get me that thing that you've been talking about getting me? Don't worry about it. You worry about something else. I'm going to worry about that. Now, why do we do that with our kids? It's because we love them and we don't want them to be focused on the wrong things and we don't want them to be discouraged or anxious about things that they don't need to be discouraged or anxious about. And so God does the same thing with us. We often think that what we need to face an unsure situation that's before us is more information. Is it going to work out? How long is it going to take? What's going to happen? God, what's your plan here? Give me the whole thing, right? How's it all going to work out in the end? And it's very possible that God would say to you what he said to his disciples here. I've got a plan. I want you to trust me. I'm not going to give you all the information. I'm not going to answer all your questions, but I am going to give you the power of my spirit so that you can walk with me step by step through this situation and do what I've called you to do. And you just let me, your loving Heavenly Father, worry about the rest. You know, so many times we think we need more information. But Jesus said it's not more information that you really need to face the situation. What you really need is power, and I want to give that to you by my Holy Spirit. So Jesus says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now here Jesus, by saying this phrase, come upon you, he's using a phrase that was commonly used in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit coming upon a person. If you read the book of Judges, if you read 1 Samuel, you often find this phrase, that the Spirit of God came upon a person to empower them to fulfill some particular thing that God had called them to do. Now in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, Jesus is having the Last Supper with his disciples. And we read this very long kind of discourse that Jesus gives during the Last Supper. And during that supper, he explains to them, guys, I'm leaving. But if I leave, it's actually good for you. It's advantageous for you because if I leave, I'll send the Holy Spirit. And this is what he says about the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 14, he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you the Helper, the Spirit of Truth. And you know him already because he dwells with you and he will be in you. So I want you to see this. We just saw three different words here that describe different relationships that people have with the Holy Spirit. He is with you, he will be in you, and now here in Acts, he's coming upon you. So there's three different relationships there. The Holy Spirit is with you prior to your conversion. He's the one who causes you to realize that you're a sinner, and he's the one who points you to Jesus Christ as the answer. 
And the moment then that you put your faith in Jesus and you give your life to him, the Holy Spirit then comes into your life and begins to dwell within you. When you become a child of God, God puts his spirit inside of you as a mark, as a sign that you are his. But then there's this third relationship, right? This, this is an empowering experience. That's what you need to understand about this coming upon. It's an empowering experience of the Holy Spirit. He says, you will receive power when my Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Now, the power of the Holy Spirit was given to them so that they could be witnesses for Jesus Christ. It's been said that the steam in a steam engine is not there to toot the horn. The steam in the steam engine is there to move it forward. And that's the same about the power of the Holy Spirit. The purpose is to move you forward so that you can be a witness for Jesus Christ in the world. Now, I love this word witness. It's very nuanced, much more nuanced than we realize at first glance. This word witness in Greek is the word martis. And the word martis in Greek is the word from which we get our word martyr. Now for the Greeks though, a martyr wasn't necessarily someone who died for their faith. It was someone who lived with so much conviction that they were even willing to die. They didn't necessarily die, but they were a witness. A witness, a martyr. They were a person who not only proclaims what they believe, but who lives what they believe, who is what they believe, and they believe it so strongly that they would even be willing to die for what they believe. And you can't stop a person like that. You know that? The person who's not even afraid to die for what they believe, that's how strongly they believe it. Do you know what a witness is also? A witness is a person who has witnessed something. It's that simple. I don't know if you've ever had to testify in court. I've had to do it several times. Uh, I recently uh, was a witness. I was up at Eldora, and I was on a corona lift, and I was like the only person on the lift, and I saw this accident happen on the ski slope below me. And, and so I got to the top of the lift, and I got pulled over by the, the ski patrol, and they, they told me, you need to be a witness. You're the person who saw this accident. And so they pulled me aside, they got out their notebook, and they wanted me to bear witness about what I saw. So all I had to do was just tell them the truth about what I had seen and what I had heard. And that is what Jesus has called you to do as a witness for him, to just tell the story. Tell what you have seen and heard. Tell the story of how you came to put your faith in Jesus Christ and how it has changed your life. That is one of the simplest and easiest things you can do. In fact, it's also something that most people are receptive to. Most people would be willing and, and receptive to you telling your story. They would be open to hearing that. And you know what? It's also one of the most powerful things you can do. So be a witness, share your story, and be a martyr, right? Be a person who's so dedicated to that belief that you don't only tell it, but you live it, you are it, and if need be, you would even die for it. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. The mission, interestingly, was to begin where? Right where they were already at, right there at home. Isn't that usually the hardest place, though? The mission begins where? Where you're at right now, at home. And sometimes that is the hardest place, but you know what? From there, it, then it would spread to the surrounding regions and even to the ends of the earth. And here's my takeaway from that. Before you go to the ends of the earth, God wants you to be a witness for him right here at home where you're at right now. You know, I've met so many people who said, I will be a witness for the Lord somewhere else. 
right? I, will be a, I want to go on the mission field, you know, someplace where they don't have mobile internet and people can't read or something. That's a place where I can really be a witness for Jesus in some faraway place. But here's what's important for you to see. The mission starts right here at home. In your Jerusalem, wherever that's at, right where you're at right now. You know, the mission field begins right outside those doors. And God wants you to be a witness for him first, right where you're at right now. If you're faithful with that, well then who knows, he might even take you to the ends of the earth. But it begins right here at home. So this power from the Holy Spirit, it's an empowering so that what? We can effectively fulfill what God has called us to do as a witness for him in the world. Let's continue from verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you, look sta- why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, he will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now this must have been an incredible sight to see. Jesus ascending into heaven and it seems that his disciples were just so blown away by what they were seeing that they just kind of stood there for a while staring up at the sky even after he was gone. And so these two men in white robes, presumably angels, they come and they say, guys, he's gone. He's not coming back, guys. He, he's gone. He's out of here. And but they said, but know this. He's going to come back in the same way that he left. Now how did he leave? He left visibly. He left physically, and he left from the Mount of Olives. It says that he will come back in the same way that he left. And that is the hope of the world, by the way, that Jesus is coming again, and when he does, he will establish his kingdom. When will that be? We don't know. Jesus didn't give us that information. So often, again, what we think is that we need more information, but Jesus says what you really need is not more information. What you really need is power to face that situation that's ahead of you. And that power is the promise of the Father. How can you have the promise of the Father? Well, let me give you two steps, and we're going to finish here. How can you have the promise of the Father? Number one, first of all, you have to become a child of God. If you're here today and you say, I I don't know if I'm a child of God, am I? A child of God is a person who has put their faith in Jesus Christ, and they've been adopted by God because of the gospel. And if you're not yet a true child of God, you can be. You can put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ and you can become a true child of God. And the second thing I would say to you is this, that you can come to him. Once you are a child of God, you can come to him as a father, as your father in heaven and ask him to baptize you with his Holy Spirit and to empower you to carry out his mission. Jesus said that the father will not turn away anyone who asks for the Spirit. And you can let God carry out that revolution first within you and then through you into the world. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you for this great hope of the gospel. We thank you for the hope, Lord, that you are coming again to establish your kingdom. And Lord, that you have made a way for us to become your children and to know you as our heavenly father. And Lord, we come to you now. I pray for anybody here today who would say, you know what, I'm not sure I am a child of God. Lord, I pray that they would put their faith in you, their trust, and that today they would become a true child of God through faith. Lord, I also pray for all of us in here that as children we would come to our Heavenly Father and say, Lord, I want that promise. I want that promise of the power from the Holy Spirit that I need to to carry out the things that you've called me to do. Lord, would you 
baptize me in your Holy Spirit. Just surround me. I don't want to just dip my toes in. I want to jump in all the way. So Lord, would you do that work this morning? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This message was brought to you by Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more media content or to find out more about our church, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. That's whitefieldschurch.com.